0: When you come to chapter 18 of Second Samuel, you already know that Absalom is doomed. You know that because of chapter 17, verse 14, where it says, The Lord had appointed to defeat the good counsel of Ahithel to the intent that the Lord might bring evil upon Absalom. So in chapter 18, there is nothing really to surprise us regarding the outcome with respect to Absalom. Last week our brother Paul mentioned to me that again you have the reference of David's prayer earlier in chapter fifteen, turn back there. Now, this is an important thing. I admit I had forgotten this uh, significant parallel verse, and it is good to draw to your attention again uh, this evening. Because as David hears of Absalom's rebellion and the conspiracy there and Ahithel's involvement, David prays and says, O Lord, I pray thee, turn the counsel of Ahithel into Foolishness. And so we're seeing David praying unto the Lord. We're seeing David praying in the will of God. We're seeing the Lord then answering that prayer in chapter 17. And then all of that coming to pass in the death of Absalom in chapter 18. And so in simple terms, we could say the Lord's face is set against Absalom. It's a fearful thing to have the Lord's face set against you to pause and consider that again and remind you of the gospel application in John chapter 3 that those who do not believe the gospel the wrath of God abideth upon them for Absalom it is too late for you it is not there is still the opportunity for you to repent and believe the gospel that the face of God that now is set against you will be turned to being in your favor that the Lord will look upon you shine the light of his countenance upon you in blessing. But for Absalom, the face of God is set against him. And thus, Ahithophel's counsel is disregarded. We saw that last time. And as Absalom heeds the counsel of Hushai, we see an awful civil war battle ensues. Again, when you read the account of verses 7 and 8 of chapter 18, you cannot but think of a place like Gettysburg. You've been there and you stand in some of those fields, you can imagine the hundreds of thousands of men in battle in that time, and the slaughter was very great. And so it is here. The battle, verse number eight, is scattered over the face of all the country, the wood devouring more people that day than the sword devoured. There is just all manner of mayhem and tragedy as men lose their lives on that battlefield. Brother, fighting against brother civil war in the land of Israel. But as we see these events, I really want to look at this from David's perspective. After all, he is the subject of our studies in this series. And so how does all of this transpire with regards to David and particularly with his thoughts towards Absalom? To be honest, there are details in the narrative here that are hard to understand and hard to, to put all the significance in. But I think we can uh, take a line of thought regarding David's response to Absalom here that is edifying and will benefit all of us tonight. First of all, please take the time to note David's resolve against Absalom. When you come to the end of the chapter and you read the grief that David encounters, you should not presume that David thought for a second that Absalom is in the right and that Absalom should have been king that day. It is very clear in all of the account here that David's mind is set in resolution against Absalom's rebellion. And he acts in that regard. We've already mentioned the prayer of chapter 15 and verse number 31. He is praying to the Lord for the Lord to defeat Absalom's rebellion. He's not for a second being complacent. Well, this is the will of God. My time as king is over. It is time for me now to go away into the background of human history. He understands Absalom is acting against the Lord's will and he's resolute in his determination to overthrow the rebellion of Absalom. You've got to understand that. So whatever happens there on, David understands that Absalom is a usurper and a rebel and he's acting against the will of God. And so what does he do? He prays through that. And that is the re- to be the response of God's people. When we, see, when we see actions against the will of God in the world, in our families, in the church, we are right to pray against the violations of God's will. It is a wrong view of God's sovereignty to say, well, all things happen according to God's will. Therefore, what can I do about all this evil? Whether it be, again, I say, in the church, in the home, in society, it is right and proper for God's people to be clear in their resolution to stand against evil in all its forms. And that standing will be brought out in the place of prayer. We'll pray for God to do his good will. In simple terms, it is praying those prayers that the Lord's name would be hallowed, his kingdom would come, and his will be done. Not the will of the evil one, but the will of God. And so you see David's resolution here in his prayer, but also in his planning. We've noticed already that he plans to have these spies in Jerusalem to then act to overthrow Absalom's reign. He seeks to do that. He is strategic in that purposes. And then when you get to chapter 18, he also acts in strategy. He sets forth these troops into three parts under these three leaders, Joab, Abishai, and also Atai the Gittite. He has these men that he believes are leaders and can, can, can command, the, uh, command the work of the soldiers under their care, and he divides the troops into these parts. Now, if you're not certain as to what the objective is, you should see what David does in response to their counsel. They say he was going to go himself, verse number 2. I will surely go forth with you myself. But the people answered, thou shalt not go forth. They understand what's at stake here. It is not just about taking Absalom away from his rebellion. It is to make sure David goes back upon the throne. The resolution here is not any king but Absalom. It is David. Back on the throne. And so wisely. And David consents to this. Wisely determined in this particular battle. You as the king David. You are worth more than 10,000 of us. The significance of the king. And so when you think of this resolution. And David's resolve against Absalom. It shows again that David clearly understands that Absalom is in the wrong. And he resolves to correct the wrong. Even though he knows he's under God's chastening hand, even though he knows it will mean a painful civil war, he resolves to do what is right and restore the kingdom to himself. Now, there are many reasons why we may find ourselves in challenging circumstances, a multiplicity of reasons where we may find ourselves in difficult straits. Reasons may come to your minds as to why we may feel the need to accept and comply with our circumstances. We may get to the point we find ourselves in some manner of difficulty and we, we can very quickly rationalize those difficulties. And as we rationalize the difficulties, we can excuse ourselves from doing what is right. If you've never encountered that, be thankful for God's grace. Because I certainly know times in my life where I've been confronted with a certain challenge. And immediately, when I knew what the right action was to do, I begin to argue with myself, saying, But if I do that, this will happen. And if I do that, this will happen. And I begin to rationalize my mind away from doing what is right. David had so many potential reasons not to do what he does. But his resolution to do right is so strong. Now, there may be serious. Potential cost to reversing these circumstances. But David shows us again as a man of faith the resolution to do what is right by the will of God. Absalom is acting evil. David knows what is right. So I encourage you. I'm applying this very, very broadly. I'm not going to give any particular examples. And so I'm asking the Lord to apply it to your heart as the Lord would see fit. But do not live in regret over some past sin and some failure. Ask yourselves every day, what is the right action in the present? Whatever you're facing in your life, what is the right thing to do today? Forgetting the sins of the past, what is the right step going forward? And as you do so, then consider your ways, seek to know the revealed will of God. And then do what is right, no matter the potential costs. It is always right to do right. I mean, we must be careful by God's grace, not to excuse ourselves by some potential adverse consequence. Ultimately, the application of this is very, very simple. All of us must resolve to promote the true kingdom of God. We must seek by God's grace to ensure that Christ is on the throne of people's lives and that Christ rules in our own lives, that we do all to promote his cause and his kingdom to, as it says in the gospel, to seek first the kingdom of God. It's just good to remind ourselves of the need to set our face like a flint to do the will of God. You should do that sometimes. Just come back upon your knees and get before God and say, I will by your grace do what is right. Christ is king. His kingdom is over all. And I'll do everything I can in prayer and practice to promote the kingdom of the Lord. That is David's resolve against Absalom. But secondly, you come to his request concerning Absalom. Verse number five. The king commands Joab and Abishai, and saying, Deal gently with my sake for the young man, even with Absalom. This is where things gets difficult. What is the right course of action in terms of an act of treason against the king? What is just and what is fair? And why would David then come to this request and, and bind the conscience of these men saying, Deal gently with my, for my sake with the young man? Well, clearly, for my sake, is a very significant phrase in that larger clause. David's asking them to do something because he himself wants the son's life to be preserved. I think the reference here, again in verse number 5, to the young man indicates again David's sense of compassion towards his son. His life is yet ahead of him. I wonder, again, I can't, I've got to be careful here. so much temptation to speculate in various ways. I wonder, did he think there could be some way of resolution and restoration? I'll say more of that later on, but I think we can say that David's heart is burdened and compassionate towards Absalom. There is undoubtedly natural affection for his son. He's already lost Amnon, and Bathsheba's son has also died. And there's this natural affection for the life of his son. Whatever the ultimate motivation behind the request, we see the request was ignored by Joab. I'm not going through all the details of the event and what happens here. But in simple terms, when it comes to the battlefield, verses 6 through 8, there is a very decisive victory won for David's men. 20,000 men slaughtered that day before these valiant men under Abishai and Joab and Ittai. Absalom's end, again, is a stuff of, of legend. As he rides away, it simply says in verse number 9, And Absalom met the servants of David. That's one of the verses in the Bible that you're meant to stop and think about. In this vast battlefield... As Absalom tries to flee, it's almost this happenstance event. It just happened to be the case that Absalom bumps into the servants of David. And as he flees from them, his head is caught in some a fork in a bough of this great oak, and the mule runs away, and Absalom hangs by his head from this oak. One of the men, one of the soldiers, sought to tell Joab, you see the account there, verse 10 and following how this man would not take Absalom's life because he heard the charge of the king regarding his son. But Joab, again likely fueled with the desire to put to the end of his rebellion decisively, goes forward and takes Absalom's life. Remember, there was that note way back over in verse number 25 of Chapter 17, that Joab and Absalom, they have history. So there may well be much personal vendetta here when it comes to Joab's actions. But whatever the case may be, he ensures that Absalom does not meet that night. And he dies that time in the battlefield. But I've hinted already, verse number 9 to my mind is being used to indicate to us that God is sovereignly in control of these events. And the death of Absalom is a manifestation of the death of a man cursed of God. There are a couple of things that make that clear. First of all, he is hanged from a tree. You turn back to Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21 is a really very important verse in the biblical narrative. For it tells us the mind of God towards those who hang from the tree. It's used by Paul in Galatians chapter 3 regarding Christ coming under the curse of God. And so, Deuteronomy 21 and the verse number 23, it says, His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day, for he that is hanged is accursed of God's. And when God himself is sovereignly arranging the oak the height of the mule, the position of the branches of that oak, and sovereignly arranges the meeting of Absalom and David's men, and Absalom runs and goes to the wrong oak at the wrong time. It's all in the sovereign counsel of God to indicate here's a man dying under the curse of God. It's a fearful thing to fold the hands of the living gods. And so he finds this manner God is announcing publicly. Absalom's rebellion has met my wrath. You also see the events that happened later on. After he's put to death. It says there in verse number 17 of 2 Samuel 18. And they took Absalom and cast him into a great pit in the wood. And laid a very great heap of stones upon him. What's that all about? Well, you should look back to Joshua chapter 7, 8 and 10. Let's look at Joshua chapter 7. For you will see in the story of God's dealing with his people how they dealt with kings who were accursed of God. Joshua chapter 7 and the verse number 26. Here's Ekin, of course. And they raised over him a great heap of stones unto this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger. Then you've got Joshua chapter 8. And the verse number 29. And the king of Ai he hanged on a tree until the eventide. And as soon as the sun was set down, Joshua commanded that they should take his carcass down from the tree and cast it at the entry of the gate of the city and raised thereon a great heap of stones. He put it all together. He's the hanging and the stones. And you're seeing in the story the story of Absalom uh Incarnation, a determination this man dies under the curse why well he's a man guilty of profound pride against the Lord we saw this morning in 2nd Timothy that out of a proud heart comes all manner of rebellions Absalom is a man marked by rebellion and the source of that rebellion is pride Look at verse number 18 of 2nd Samuel 18. Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and read up for himself a pillar, which is in the king's deal. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. Passing comment there, we were told earlier, Absalom has three sons. What's the continuity here? How do you deal with that contradiction? Well, the best I came up with from another writer was this idea that his sons had likely died by this time. Hardly certain. But that seems the best way to to bring those things together. By the way, it simply says this. I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own name. And it's called unto this day Absalom's place. Here's a man who in pride has rebelled against his father. Against the king. Ultimately against the Lord. And so in his pride, he wants a name for himself. Those who exalt themselves, God will abase. Pride will take you to a lost eternity. So I'm not proud against God. Well, what is the opposite of pride against God? It is submission to God and his ways. And so the Lord God of heaven says to you all, repent and believe the gospel. But I will not repent and believe the gospel. Why will you not repent and believe the gospel? Because I'm rebelling against God. Why are you rebelling against God? Because you think you know better than God and you're marked by manifest pride. And as such, the wrath of God abides upon you and the end of be your end. Not as it hanging from a tree. The stones put upon you. The tragedy of a life snuffed out. Appointed unto man once to die, and then the judgment. And dying under the wrath of God. There's a sobering text in Proverbs chapter 20. I think it applies very well to Absalom. Whoso curses his father or his mother, his lamp shall put out in obscured darkness. God sees the rebellion of children against parents, and citizens against government. He sees all manner of rebellion and he understands that rebellion comes out of pride. And God hates pride. So David's request concerning Absalom is ignored because God sovereignly has appointed that Absalom will die publicly under the curse of God. It's a sobering death because sin brings the judgment of God upon his head. But thirdly, moving forward, please note David's response to the news of Absalom's death. I'm not certain all the reasons for why we have these two men run independently, Cushai and Ahimaaz, were simply told the events. It may well be that Joab wanted to ensure the news of Absalom's death comes from Cushai, who's on Joab's side. Maybe something as simple as that. And so, Joab is again the great politician is trying to orchestrate events for his own benefit. Whatever the case may be, when you get to uh, chapter 18, the verse number 32, Cushai simply says, Let the enemies of my lord the king be as that young man is. It's a way of saying to David, The son of the king is dead. And the king was much moved, went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, thus he said, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Why does David respond in such profound grief? Well, there are probably three main possibilities. And it's very possible the case that there's a combination of all of these three factors. Is it a case of this being a marked sentimental affection that he had for his son. Some would say it's undue. But is it really undue affection to mourn the death of your son, even if that son is rebelling against you? Is it not that natural affection that you have for your own born children? And so verse number five, I've said already, I think would hint in this direction. Deal gently for my sake with the young man. And then verse number 33. Again you have the repetition. Oh my son, my son, my son. There seems to be this weight upon the human relationship here. Chapter 19 verse 4. Oh my son, Absalom. Oh Absalom, my son, my son. And so it seemed to me there is this this grief of the human relationship. No matter how evil Absalom have been against him. It's a profound sense of grief. Some also suggest, secondly, that there may well be grief from David regarding his own sin. Nathan had told him that the sword would not depart from David's house. And so they suggest, well, what's happening here is David is recognizing the sword has not departed. And he he then senses grief for his own sin because he brought this on Absalom himself. That's got truth in it. But you don't see any of that in the text itself. At no point in chapter 18 and 19 do you see David himself confessing his own sin and his own cause in this. Maybe part of it, but it doesn't persuade my conscience. I think there's another third potential factor here. In connection with the fact that Absalom is his son, I think there is profound grief over Absalom's lost condition. And I think there's a large part of what's involved here. There are two helps to point us in this direction. First of all, there is David's recorded response regarding the two previous deaths of his children. Back to 2 Samuel 20. You have the interesting record of the death of the newborn of Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 12, verse number 20. You have there after he hears the child is dead, verse nineteen. Then David arose from the earth and washed, and anointed himself and changed his apparel and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house when he required, and when they required, he they set bread before him and he did eat. There isn't this sense of a profound outpouring of human emotion here. And he tells the reason why, verse number 22, or verse 23. Now he is dead, wherefore should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall not go to him, but he shall not, I shall go to him, sorry, but he shall not return to me. That's death number one. Then chapter 13, verse number 36, you have the record of the death of Amnon. And it came to pass, as soon as he had made an end of speaking, that behold, the king's sons came, And lifted up their voice and wept. And the king also and all his servants wept very sore. No outpouring of grief for the child. An outpouring of grief for Amnon. And now another outpouring of grief for Absalom. Ambrose, church father, says this. What is the cause of this? What is the reason? He wept for those who were dead. But did not think that he ought to weep for the dead infant. Because he thought that they were lost to him, but hoped that the latter would rise again. That's Ambrose's inference. That he expected to see the infant again in the resurrection. But had no such expectation for Amnon or Absalom. And so his heart pours out in grief. There's one other reason where I think there is some weight to this. And it is the words of verse number 33 of chapter 18 again, where he says, Would God I had died for thee, O Absalom, my son, my son. Does that not sound somewhat similar to the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 9? Where he says, For I could wish that myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. That's a very, very difficult verse. But it has the idea that such is the love for lost souls. That they would rather die than see their brethren cast into a lost eternity. I don't believe for a second Paul is desiring to be accursed from Christ. That's not the point. It is language, picture language to emphasize the strength of his feeling towards his brethren. Paul wants to be with Christ, which is far better. But it is a way, a manner of speaking, to say that when the lost would go into a lost eternity, would it not be better for the saved to die than the lost? And so could it not be the case here that David's grief is because he realized that Absalom has died under the curse of God and has gone into a lost eternity? We've got to be consistent In the application of our theology. By faith we assert that salvation has been accomplished by Christ Jesus. By faith we believe that Christ's life and death covers our sins. By faith we assert that Jesus Christ is the only appointed saviour of sinners. By faith we assert that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And thus by the same faith we confess that to die out of Christ is to enter a lost eternity. Funerals today have sought to do everything they can to soften the blow of that reality. And people lose a loved one and the general tenor is, oh, it's better for them now, regardless of their life and regardless of their faith. They're in a better place now. Their suffering has ended. All of these terms are often used. They're having some part in heaven now. All manner of speech, often blasphemous speech regarding the God of heaven. Because there is the understandable desire to put out of our minds the thoughts that they've died and gone to a lost eternity. They've gone to join the spirits of those in prison who disobeyed the word in Noah's day, Second Peter. We've got to be consistent in these things. And if we don't have the right heart here, then I fear we will deny the gospel practically. There is no other way for a sinner to avoid a lost eternity than to come to faith in Christ Jesus. And so when the lost die out of Christ, there should be in the heart of the child of God That profound sense of grief. And all more the the case if the one who dies is your son. David, he understood that goodness and mercy would follow him all the days of his life. He understood that he would dwell in the house of the Lord forever. But not so for Absalom. Not so for Absalom. I believe that is, at least in some part, the explanation for David's response on the news of Absalom's death. But fourthly, and quickly as we close, we should take the time to note his restoration after Absalom's death. Joab, in typical Joab fashion, lacks all compassion. He's no thought for David's grief, but he does have a grasp of the public mood we might say he's a politician with his finger on the pulse of popular opinion and regardless of the cause for david's grief job understands that david's grief will have profound impacts on the future of the kingdom he understands that his grief the outpouring of that grief undermines the sacrifice of those who had fought for the kingdom And denies the glory of the victory. Verse 3 of chapter 19. The people being ashamed steal away when they flee in battle. There was not this sense of triumph. The victory was turned into mourning as they realized the weights of David's soul on that occasion. It's also worth noting that in this profound grief, that grief will distract David from his duties as king. Verse number 7. Job says, now therefore arise, go forth and speak comfortably unto thy servants. If you don't do this, it's going to be worse for you. In other words, Job's saying, it's time for you to be king again. And to rule your people wisely. And realize that this is all about the fact that Absalom had rebelled against you. And you're the rightful king. Therefore, now it's time to take on your responsibilities once more. And the notes. It is worth taking the time to note, again, Joab lacks compassion here. But surely there are times when duty must take precedent over our own personal human emotions. Again, it's worth remembering that sometimes there are times, no matter how difficult we find things, no matter how sad we are, we have responsibilities, we must get on with things. That is a proper response to God's sovereignty. But, be that as it may, when you get to verse number 8, you see that the king arose and sat in the gates, And they told unto all the people, saying, Behold, the king does sit in the gate. And all the people came before the king, for Israel had fled every man to his tent. The rebellion is dealt with. There are some figures to deal with later on. We'll see that in the chapter that follows. But what you're seeing here is despite the rebellion, God's will stands firm. And his promise Will surely come to pass. David is the rightful king, and he takes his throne again in the sovereign purpose of the Lord. David, he is no Messiah. He's a man marked by so many faults. But as you read the faults of David, as you read those inconsistencies, at the same time, you come away from the story, you take a step back from the story, and you see. God's purpose eternally is to raise his son to the throne of David as the son of David. And nothing, no Absalom, no devil can stop Christ from reigning on his throne. That is the testament of the word of God. Christ shall reign forever and forever. Make sure he is your king today. Lie before him and worship and glorify the Son of the Most High God. Let's bow together, please, in prayer. As we close, again, I trust the Lord will take his word. So this was my desire in light of this message is that we'd all have a heart for the lost. We'd all realize the solemnity of living in this world, living before people with judgment day before us, there's a heaven to gain and hell to shun. O oh Lord, take your word, apply those thoughts to the lost in this building or listening on, we pray, O oh God, that you deal with the hearts of the unconverted. Again, pray again, those of us with family members outside of Christ. O oh Lord, we pray you'd cause them to come to see it, come to the Savior, to trust in Christ Jesus. These are difficult verses. We bring them to thee in prayer. Hear our cries, we pray. Help us, O Lord, to walk before thee. We praise you for Christ, our King. In his name we pray. Amen.